Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from Psalm 2. God's word reads as follows. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So far the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, In Psalm 1, the psalmist begins with describing for us the the blessedness of life when we live life in sweet communion with our Lord. The Christian life is also a fruitful life. Because it is watered. It is watered by the streams of of living water. That is, by the Word as well as by the Spirit. But then Psalm 1 also describes the life of the unbeliever. A life of vanity, of of emptiness and and meaningless. They are described in that Psalm as as chaff which the wind drives away. It's, It's like the stuff that blows out of the back of a combine that blows away in the wind. In the opening psalm, the psalmist portrays for us two very different people traveling two very different roads with two very different destinations. Humanity is divided, divided between believers and unbelievers, those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who belong to the world. Believers and unbelievers inhabit two opposing worlds and view life and the purpose of life very differently, radically differently, precisely because the world is divided as it is by these two opposing kingdoms. This beloved Lord will have huge ramifications for you and I living in this world today. Our rulers, the peoples belonging to the kingdom of the world, walk according to the cultural norms of our society and culture. They have bought into the ideologies and philosophies that are so prevalent in the world today. Ways that, and the wisdom of the world that defy the wisdom and the ways of God as set forth in His Word. Contradicting the way of God. Leading to and resulting in a clash between these two kingdoms. So let's proceed this morning to examine this second psalm together under a theme, Clashing Kingdoms. We're going to look at three things. First of all, the rage of the nations. Secondly, the reign of Christ. And thirdly, the responsibility of rulers. Look at Psalm 1 to 3 for me, verses 1 to 3. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Congregation, the why here is not to be understood as as a general inquiry in search of an actual answer. The why here is not hands put up to the Lord as, why Lord, why is this going on? It's not a cry of of despair or, or desperation. Rather, the why expresses the sheer astonishment, the utter amazement that anybody would have the audacity, the the to be so foolish as to oppose the almighty, eternal, sovereign God. Why in the world would anyone, anyone be so foolish as to engage in a battle against almighty God? It's so pointless, isn't it? It's so futile. And yet, what do we read? We read the rulers and the peoples of the of the world have come together and they're seen plotting together. They're strategizing against God and His anointed. The psalmist describes not just an attitude of of indifference. We sometimes think, oh yeah, the world is just indifferent to God. That's not what we're reading. No, they're strategizing. They're plotting. There's contempt here for God, isn't there? Hatred. Defiance. The attack is relentless. Their assault is aggressive. What is their intent? To destroy and to annihilate Christ and the church. Such are the ways of the ungodly rulers and nations of the world who deny and who continue to defy our Almighty God. Their contempt for God and His anointed is one of outright rebellion, outright battle, what we see taking place. Rather than submitting to God's will, rather than adhering to God's law and the word, rather than taking heed to God's wisdom and God's ways, rather than submitting to the kingship of Christ, the nations of the world want autonomy. What's autonomy? They want out from under the rule of Christ. Instead of Christ sitting on the throne, they place themselves on the throne. They want to be their own God. More significantly, these nations and peoples of the world have formed an unholy alliance with Satan to overthrow God, to overthrow Christ, and to destroy the church. And yet, congregation, what we read here in Psalm 2 is doesn't really come as a surprise to anyone here this morning, does it? Humanity is divided. Divided between two groups. You have the friends of God on the one hand, and you have the friends of Satan on the other hand, and it's Genesis 3.15 takes us back to that when Satan, God cursed Satan, saying, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We often look at Genesis 3.15, and oftentimes when we think of Genesis 3.15, we think, here's the first promise of the Messiah found very early on after Adam and Eve sinned. And the focus there oftentimes is the promise of the Messiah. But also in that very passage, we read of the clash of the kingdoms, don't we? We read of the clash of the two seeds, the kingdom of God and that of the world and Satan. God is declaring war. 
There is a clash of the kingdoms that goes back to Genesis 3.15. So what we're encountering, what we're seeing in the world today has been taking place going back to the garden. And we see that already after God declares war against Satan. What's the very first thing we read in chapter 4? Cain kills Abel. And at that point, what do we see? We see Satan rubbing his hands with glee and saying, you know that line of promise from which God had just promised the Messiah? I just crushed it. I just destroyed it. But boys and girls, how does God respond after Cain kills Abel? What happens? God comes with a promise of the line would continue through, what's the name of that person again? Seth. And so the reality of of the antithesis becomes even more pronounced, doesn't it? With the calling and establishment of the covenant with Abraham, leaving his entire family in that fallen state of unbelief and idolatry. And again, that, that the two opposing kingdoms becomes even greater with the establishment of Israel as a nation, a theocracy under God, leaving all the other nations of the world under the reign and the rule of the world with Satan as its master. And throughout the Old Testament, we continue to read of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, men like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, who constantly are waging war against God's anointed people. They plot together against God and his anointed. But these pagan nations and rulers, what God and what the world or Satan intends for evil, God always turns it around, doesn't he? And he preserves that line of promise from which the Messiah would come. And the reality of that is portrayed very clearly when you read Revelation chapter 12. There we see a fiery red dragon hovering above an expected mother, the Old Testament church, seeking to devour the Christ child. So in Revelation 12, we have a summary of what's taking place in the entire Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, we see how Satan's constantly on the attack in response to that Genesis 3.15, that clash of the kingdoms. What's the goal? To destroy Christ, to destroy the church. And that clash of the kingdoms continues well into the New Testament, doesn't it? Herod is an Edomite, descendant of Esau. What does he want to do? He wants to kill all the baby boys two and under in Bethlehem. Again, a clash of the kingdoms. It takes us back to Genesis 3.15. The Jews rejected and plotted against Jesus. We read how Christians are being persecuted. What does the future look like? Revelation 13. The beast of the sea. What does it represent? Political, religious powers along with, with corporate giants uniting together in an all-out assault against Christ and the church. The beast of the land, that same chapter, bears the mark 666, demands that all the nations and the peoples to worship him alone. And all those who do not bear the mark will be punished. They will be persecuted. And we're not far from that, are we? I mean, we read those, those chapters like Revelation 13, and we saw, again, what did the government do during covid it froze all this counts of some leaders, didn't it? What would it take for our government to freeze the account of everybody, every Christian who ever made a donation to a church? Wouldn't take much, would it? You know, we read things like, like the beast of the, of the land and, yeah, are we that far off today? Will Christians be cut off from trade and commerce? 
Is that all part of the clash of the kingdom? Is this the outworking of Genesis 3.15 and what the psalmist describes here in, in Psalm 2? And to be sure, we see our own political leaders. Where are they taking our nation? We see the liberal anti-Christian agenda of the world and of our, of our government issues like abortion, euthanasia, the whole LBGTQ2 movement. If you refuse to go with the flow, and as Christians, we don't go with the flow of the world, we're the ones being judged and labeled as unloving and intolerant. We're not even allowed to counsel those who struggle with sexual identity issues. Freedom of speech? What does that mean in our charter today? Ask Jordan Peterson. And the list goes on, doesn't it? Our nation is not only becoming more godless congregation, it's becoming more God-denying and God-defying. Our nation is becoming more and more immoral, anti-Christian. And the peoples and the nations, our nation goes along with the flow, doesn't it? Christian values, beliefs, despised and rejected in what was once a dominantly a, a Christian nation. Where has that gone in the last 50 years? What percentage of people are actually attending church? I read a statistic not too long ago where it said 15% of the Canadian population attend a church, temple, or synagogue once a week. 15%. We live in times, beloved the Lord, when, when evil is called good and good is called evil. And yet, we as Christians, we, we, we know all this. I'm not telling you anything new this morning. All we have to do is hear the news. All we do is look out into the world around us. And there's that reality of of Psalm 2, the clash of the kingdoms, where the psalmist takes us back to Genesis 3.15. Secondly, say, Pastor, well, that sounds all rather bleak and dismal. What are we in for? I assure you this morning that it's not bleak and it's not dismal. You say, why not? Look at where this world is going. Look at what we're experiencing in our culture today. What reason do we as Christians have for optimism in this world in which we live? Why? Because Christ reigns. Because Christ reigns. In the earth, at the end congregation, we know how the story of redemptive history ends, don't we? The church not only prevails, but the church is the church victorious. And listen to God's response to all the diabolical scheming and scamming that's going on by those who belong in the kingdom of the world. Look at verse 14, 4 rather. He laughs. He holds them in derision. What's God laughing at? He doesn't, he's not laughing because he thinks this is funny. No, not at all. Rather, his laughter is one of the, of the sheer stupidity. He, he's laughing at the, at the futility of those of the world who who think that they can overthrow God and and defy the kingdom of God. He holds them in derision. Derision means ridicule, mockery, scorn. God doesn't feel at least, not the least bit threatened by all the world's plotting, scheming together. One author put it this way, he says, The divine laughter is a vivid pointer to the sovereignty of God and the Lord's invulnerability to all human scheming, even those of the most powerful. In a strange way, it is one of the most assuring sounds of the whole Psalter as it relativizes even the largest of human claims for ultimate control over the affairs of peoples and nations. The fiercest terror 
is made the object of laughter and derision and thus is rendered impotent to frighten those who hear the laughter of God in the background. See, we as Christians, we don't need to live in fear, do we? We live by faith. Why? Do you hear the laughter of God? Do you hear the laughter of God? Do you see Christ seated on the throne? God's sovereignty and His providence provide for us great comfort for all who are citizens in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, God is supreme in glory, in power, in majesty. He created the heavens and the earth. How? By the very breath of His mouth. He governs and He rules. He upholds the universe and everything in it. Even the fiercest terror is the object of God's laughter. The enemies of Christ are nothing. He raises kings, nations, powers, and brings them to ruin all to fulfill His plan in that story of redemptive history. Remember Egypt, Asia, Babylon, Persia, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire? What happened? God raised them to power and brought them to nothing when their purpose was accomplished in that line of promise leading to the Messiah who controls the nations and the powers of this world? It's our God. He's sovereign. And history proves, beloved the Lord, that you can't mess with a sovereign God. Without a doubt, our omnipotent, omniscient, immutable God knows exactly how absurd, how futile it is for kings, nations, peoples, plotting together, waging war against God and His anointed. It says, He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. The clash of the kingdoms is an inescapable reality. But, but, we are assured that God will bring these rulers and will bring these nations to nothing. And the judges of this earth are useless. In verse 5, the psalmist goes on to assure us, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. God does not remain silent. What does a sovereign God have to say? Why does he hold them in derision? Look at verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Jesus is that anointed king who following his death and resurrection has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus lives. And not only lives congregation, but he reigns. God has given to Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. God has appointed Jesus as the master and ruler of the universe. On the cross and with his resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. There on the cross, Jesus obtained that victory over sin, death, and hell. There on the cross, Jesus set you and I as Christians, as followers of Christ. He set us free from the tyranny and the rule of the devil. Where is Christ and what's he doing? That's our comfort, isn't it? The reign and the rule of Christ is is not for some thousand years when he returns to earth and rules in Jerusalem for a thousand years. 
No, his reign and rule, beloved, the Lord is now. He is the reigning king of glory. In Revelation 7, we read how the angels have set a seal upon all the elect of God. It's a beautiful picture to us, the church, that not one of God's elect can ever be taken away. And then we also read in the Revelation how, how there's a scroll. And on that scroll, all things have been ordained by a sovereign God. And no one on earth is found worthy to open the scroll. And that scroll is then handed over to whom? To our Lord Jesus Christ, who opens the scroll, who opens the seals, and will execute that God-ordained plan to perfection, to completion, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again on the clouds of glory. Redemptive history will run its course. How do we know? Because Christ is on the throne. The clash of the kingdoms is absolutely real. The beloved of the Lord, Psalm 2, is a psalm of great comfort. There's the reality of the warfare. But there too, not just stay focused on this mess, but focus on Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, who lives and reigns. What's Psalm 2 about? It celebrates the coronation of Jesus as King. And because He is King, we are assured of that victory. Listen again to verses 7 to 9. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus' work of redemption has been accomplished on Calvary's cross. And it was rewarded by the Father. And the world has been given over into the hands of Christ living and reigning in heaven. All the earthly rulers seek to serve self. But Jesus' reign is one of righteousness, one of justice, perfect justice. All the rulers of the earth, God's God's anointed, does not use that power for self-glory or self-gain, but for the glory and the honor of his Father in heaven. All the wicked rulers who think that their earthly kingdoms are invincible and will last forever, dear Nebuchadnezzar, Look what my hands have done as he boasts about his kingdom. God turns him like an ox. There's one kingdom, beloved of the Lord, that will be from everlasting to everlasting. That's the kingdom of Christ. And he will make all his enemies his footstool. Kingdoms and nations have risen, even flourished, only to be brought to ruin again by God. There's one kingdom, the kingdom of God, that is from everlasting to everlasting. Christ anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives and he reigns. Jesus is the king of glory and he cannot and he will not be overthrown. In fact, as we read here, all who oppose him will be utterly destroyed. They'll be broken to pieces like a potter's vessel. But as we march onward into the battle, into the clash of the kingdoms, both of the Lord, we do so. But who's leading the church into battle? We do not go alone. Christ is a rider on the white horse leading the church forward, onward, and into battle. The church militant will be the church triumphant. How can we be so sure? Because God says so in his word. We read it in Psalm 2. Jesus reigns. Love the Lord. He's on the throne. And our Lord Jesus Christ will guide the church. The church will not only prevail, but she is victorious. We win. We win. Third, God issues an urgent appeal in verses 10 to 12. 
Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. God calls all peoples and rulers. Rebel against God and his against his anointed. Smarten up. Listen up, you rulers. He urges them. He urges them to serve God's anointed king and to rejoice and to do so with trembling. He's calling upon all the wicked peoples and nations to repent of the rebellious ways. He urges the rebellious, kiss the sun. Why kiss the sun? It's a symbol of submission and total surrender. When will the peoples and the nations be blessed? When we bow the knee and serve Christ the King. The blessedness promised is for nations and peoples who bow the knee. Here's the way of blessing for any nation and for her citizens. Love of the Lord, there is no blessing, not in this life or the life to come, for the nations, kings and peoples who rebel against God and His anointed. Why is the world in such a turmoil? Why is our nation in such a mess? Because our nation, kings and peoples, refuse to kiss the sun. And rebelling against God and his anointed, God removes his hand of blessing. And we see, when God removes his hand of blessing, the immorality, the godlessness, the God-defiance that we see, even in our own nation here, begins to become more and more dominant, doesn't it? And so he urges all leaders, repent, turn to the Lord and live. We might wonder and ask ourselves, What's in store for our nation? If God were to further remove his hand of blessing from Canada, what will it be like living in this country? The nations continue to plot. The battle of the kingdom continues. But in the meantime, love of the Lord, the church, must proclaim the lordship of Christ, not only in the church, but in the community in which he's placed you here in Edmonton. The church must continue to sound the alarm, not only to those who are attending church, but those in our communities who are not. For the sake of this nation, for the salvation of her citizens, the church cannot afford to be silent. We must engage in the work of evangelism. We must engage and support the work of missions, whether home missions, foreign missions. We must rally around organizations such as ARPA. Jesus, before his ascension into heaven, commissioned the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How? How do we do that? Say, so that, that's, that's for those who are trained. Those, that's for those who went to seminary. No. Above the Lord, we're called upon as Christians to put on the armor of God. We ought not to be ashamed of who we are in Christ Jesus. Ashamed of Christ? How could that be? Why would that be? We ought to go with the conviction, the assurance that Christ is on the throne. The very Christ who gave the Great Commission. This is not a time for spiritual complacency. This is not a time for sitting in our comfortable pews. Look at the world. Look at our nation. Look at our own city. You know, it's so easy. And I'm guilty of the same thing. So easy to complain about our political leaders. You sit back and you listen to the news and it, it drives you crazy, right? But rather than sitting back and complaining, 
First Timothy 2, 1-3 says, Therefore I exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, that it says, for kings and all who are in authority, that we lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, of the Lord in light of Psalm 2. And the psalmist and God calling our nation to repentance and to kiss the Son, to embrace Jesus as King, we more than ever need to pray for our Prime Minister, for our Premier, for our Mayors, for our Councillors, regardless of their political bent, regardless of their political preferences, Beloved of the Lord, they need our prayers. We need to call them to repentance. It's easier to sit in our lazy boys, listen to the six o'clock news, or do we get on our knees and fold our hands and pray that our prime minister would turn his heart to God and would govern this nation according to the principles and the foundations upon which it was established, going back to the word of God, the command the psalmist gives is for the rulers to kiss the sun. Isn't that what we want our leaders to be doing? To acknowledge the kingship of Christ who's seated on the throne. And to do so, congregation, all the more so knowing that on that great and glorious day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will one day bow. And every tongue will one day confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Where does Psalm 2 take us? Yeah, there's the mess. There's the battleground. Now look to Jesus, seated on the throne. And what do we desire? We desire rulers and nations to acknowledge the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, living in this godless, immoral world, love of the Lord, we do not lose heart, do we? Yes, the battle is real, and it will continue until the day Jesus returns. But Christ in the church wins the battle. And that's our comfort living in this godless, immoral world today. Christ is on the throne. Beloved of the Lord, don't lose heart. Did you hear the laughter of God? Do you see Christ on the throne? That's our comfort. Amen.